Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor at our church. And if you are new to our church, this is your first or second or third time, I want to sincerely welcome you and acknowledge just how awkward and difficult it is to walk into a new church and look around and see everybody else seeming to know one another and you're the odd person out who doesn't know anyone yet. I know that is a very uncomfortable situation to be in. I hope that you will get through and push through that. There are many people here who can become for you like family over time. I'm going to ask you to open your heart and I'm going to ask those here to remember that you are here each Sunday not just to see your good friends, but to create a welcoming home for all those who walk into this place and do not have a church home yet. So I want to just remind everyone of that. This past week, I've been rallying our photo team to, to kind of gather all of our photos from the last 20 years into one place. And so we've set up a place online for us to gather all our pictures. And I've been joining the team and uploading all the pictures from the past. It's sort of absorbed my week. It's consumed me. And I've been looking over all these pictures from our church's history. And this week, I feel like I've been falling in love with our church all over again. And granted, you know, photos capture the best moments, don't they? We, we only take pictures of the happy times, so everyone's smiling. I never say, hey, your heart's breaking. Hold that, that face for a second. Can I just take a picture of your grief? We don't do that. So uh, granted, I'm, looking, I'm taking a stroll down memory lane. It's all the good memories. But I'm also just remembering and doing that, how many incredible ways that God has met us as a church over the last 20 years. And so it's really refreshed me. I've experienced revival this week from the strangest place, uploading photos to Shutterfly. God has really renewed my heart. So I wanted to share that with you. This morning, the word comes to us from James chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And the title of the message is, A Call to Prayer. A Call to Prayer. Here is the passage. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up if they have sinned they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Amen. That's the word of God. Let me start by asking you a rather personal question. How is your prayer life going? How's your prayer life? On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your own prayer life today? Don't start shouting out numbers. I'm not asking you to actually tell us in public, but it's a question for reflection. I I perused the Internet for statistics on prayer in America, and the truth is the statistics are pretty encouraging. According to at least one recent Pew study, nearly 80% of evangelical Christian adults pray at least once a day. 
That's encouraging, isn't it? Almost 80% of Christians in America pray at least once a day. I know that the people at Harvest are doing at least better than that. We, we at Harvest pray at least three times a day, twice on the days we skip breakfast. Did you, did you catch that? <laughs> but it seems like even though the statistics on prayer are encouraging, when I talk to people about their own relationship with God, prayer remains as one of the top four things, what I call the four horsemen of Christian guilt, perpetual Christian guilt. In other words, there are four things that consistently Christians I meet seem to say, I should be doing more of this. Prayer is one of them. Bible reading is another one. Evangelism is another one of them. And giving or serving, giving of ourselves is another one. And those are the four horsemen, I think, of perpetual Christian guilt. Is I know those are things that I'm kind of doing, but I know that I need and want more of it in my life. And so I want to issue, along with James, a call to our church. It's a call I've been listening to in my own heart this week. A call to prayer. And I want to start by acknowledging that as an American, prayer is not that easy or natural for me. Maybe that's true for most of us. We live in a society that's very driven by tasks. In fact, we pride ourselves on the ability to do more than one task at a time. We call it multitasking. Even though most scientists say it's a farce, you can't actually do it. We love to pretend that we can. We are driven by this frenetic pace. One of the greatest badges of honor is to say to people, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. Because in America, when we say that, what we're really saying is, oh my gosh, I'm so important. I'm so desired. I am so sought after. I'm so indispensable. And in a culture like that, a passive activity like prayer, at least what feels to us like passive, of waiting for God, making room for God to work, it seems so hard for us when we're so task-oriented, so driven, and so oriented around controlling everything that happens to us. And so I want to look at this passage and draw out some things we learn about what prayer life should be in the life of the Christian. And I think the first thing we see here is that prayer is not this thing we do on occasion, but it's meant to become a constant thing. An almost, uh, I don't want to say thoughtless, like we don't care, but thoughtless, like it's second nature to us to pray. You know, if you watch the needle on a polygraph machine, the way it works is there's lots of little jiggles, but then once in a while when you say, hey, so um, did you commit the crime? And the person goes, no. And there's this big spike. And the big spike is how you know something's going on. Because most of the time, we have little ups and downs, but when something really agitates us, we have an immediate response to that. And I think that's a good metaphor for thinking about life in general. I think for most people, every day has lots of little ups and downs. And what I mean by little is they're big for that day, but in the grand scheme of things, they're not that big a deal. You know, like a traffic jam might be a little dip that's kind of low. Uh, you know, when you're in the middle of the traffic jam, it's like your whole world, isn't it? You're so miserable. You're so mad at the other drivers around you. You're like, oh, look at them all gaping at that accident. But, of course, when you drive past it, you're also gaping with your foot on the brake. In that moment, that low seems very low. And then there's another high. Oh, a new season of 24 is coming out. And that night as you're getting ready, making popcorn... You spike a little bit. And then, oh, your favorite shoes went on sale. Oh, but 
there's none left in my, my size. And, you know, our, every day it's like up and down, up and down. That's kind of the experience of life. That every day is filled with lots of little jiggles. Nobody's flatlining. You feel things, positive or negative, on a daily basis. But every once in a while, something happens in your life that is much more significant than the everyday jiggles of the ups and downs of life. Every once in a while, something huge happens that rocks you, that shakes you to the core. It's not just a little thing. It's a seismic shift in the way you feel about life. Maybe someone you love looks you in the face and says, it's over. Maybe somebody you care about, maybe you yourself, hears terrible news from a doctor. Maybe you get called into your boss's office. They say, I'm really sorry, but a couple weeks from now, you won't be working here anymore. Maybe... You propose, and the girl says yes. Maybe you just closed on your first ever purchase of a new home. Maybe you find out together that you're finally pregnant. You see, there are significant moments in our life when it's not just like, oh, good, the new season's starting of my favorite show. That's a small up. But I'm talking about some massive ups and some massive downs. And in the course of a lifetime, you might have a couple dozen of those moments that will rock you to the core for good or for bad. And I guess the question is, when those big moments come, how do you react? What's the first thing you instinctively do when something amazingly good happens in your life? What is the first thing you instinctively want to do when tragedy strikes and you're rocked by things that make you want to die. What do you do? What is your first impulse in those big, big movements in your life? James, rather predictably, says, and he opens with this, is any of you in trouble? And that word trouble really is, uh, it's not like a momentary crisis. It's like the word, are you just completely worn out? He's talking about people who are experiencing a kind of trouble that has beat them down and has left them basically barely hanging on to life and hope. You don't want to wake up the next morning. You're not even sure what the point is of going on. He says, if you're in that place of trouble, the invitation James issues rather predictably is you really ought to pray. You really ought to pray. And I think that's good advice, and the truth is, that's what most of us already do. When the really big tragedies of life strike, it's pretty normal for people who follow Jesus to instinctively turn to him in prayer. Because trouble makes us remember how finite we are. Trouble makes us remember just how little control and power we really have. And God sometimes permits trouble to hit our lives because he knows. Let's be honest about it. If it weren't for mealtimes and trouble, how much would we really pray ever? How mindful would we be of God? Because I don't want indigestion, I superstitiously remember to pray at every meal. And at, at least half of them, I'm actually thankful for the food that I'm eating. But it's trouble 
that most naturally drives us to prayer. And when you are in trouble, the right response is to pray. Now, keep in mind, even if most of us eventually pray, there are enough surrogates or substitutes for prayer out there available to us that it's not always the first thing we think to do. For a lot of us, our first reaction to trouble is despair, self-pity, bitterness. Our first impulse is to pick up the phone and call a friend and vent or lament about our condition in life. But eventually, in trouble, most Christians are driven to God in prayer. But I think it's the second half of this verse that really catches me off guard, that expands the picture of what James is saying about prayer. Because he said, hey, is anyone happy? It's rare that the Bible deals with the subject of human happiness. I don't know why that's the case, but you don't read a lot about happiness. You read a lot about pain and other... But he asks a plain question, hey, by the way, are any of you happy? Because he's given us the same advice in happiness as he is in tragedy. He says it doesn't matter if the needle is spiking up or down. The right response in both conditions it is and ought to be to turn to God. If you're sad, it's natural you will turn to the God of the universe for hope. But he says, even if you're happy on top of the world, it's right for us to instinctively turn first to God. I mean, what's the first impulse you have when good things happen? When those shoes you've been eyeing finally go on sale, what's the first impulse you have? When you ask the girl to prom and she says yes, what's the first? When when you have a job interview and they call you and say, hey, You got the job. What's the first thing you want to do? Think about it. When you buy a new car, who's the first person you drive to to say, hey, check out my ride? So I think we all have a short list of people in our life with whom we instinctively want to share good news. For me, there are certain people in my life that as soon as anything good happens, I want to call them right away. When I achieve something significant, I am 46 years old, but the first person I still want to call are my parents. It's amazing how deep that runs. I am 46 years old. And yet when I do something noteworthy, the first person I want to boast to is my mom and dad. So they will look at me and go, that's our boy. And I'm like, yes, I am your boy. And I have done something very good. And aren't you proud of me? I want to tell them that. Because there's something about the approval of my parents that touches my heart still to this day. I want to tell my wife things. I want to share with my children. Sometimes to the point that it's hard for me to sit still. I rush home. I I want to cut the workday short because I want to say something wonderful has just happened. Who is on your short list of people that you instinctively want to share your good moments with. And maybe it's not even just good news. Maybe it's one of those days where you just wake up and you go, you know what? It feels good to be alive. The weather is awesome. I don't want to be alone today. The other day I came back from a speaking engagement. I had gotten maybe about nine, 10 hours of sleep that whole weekend. I was beat. And Mondays are my day off. And I really, really, really wanted to sleep in that day. I mean, really wanted to. And I was in deep, deep sleep, and I felt this. It's like, and my first waking impulse was anger. I was like, "What?" And it was Jeannie. 
And I thought something terrible. She knew I really wanted to sleep with me. She goes, hey, are you awake? And you know, your first words like, I am now. And she said, I'm going to go golfing, but it's so nice out. I don't want to go by myself. I know you're tired, but will you just come with me? I don't like golf enough to say yes for that, but I saw in her eyes that she felt good to be alive. It was such a beautiful day, maybe the last one we're going to have. And so I went out. And you know what? We had the time of our lives. And at least in the front nine, I played lights out. I've never played so well ever in my life. And it was a wonderful day. And I just thought about that. When you're in a good mood and it feels good just to be breathing, who do you want to share that with? And I think what James is saying is maybe one of the truest observations about your relationship with God is whether you, he makes it onto that list of people you want to share your triumphs and your happiness with. Everyone knows we go to God in trouble, but I think it says something tremendous about our relationship with God when we also instinctively turn to him in joy. Because most of the time, in trouble I go to God, but in joy I celebrate. I thank my heavenly stars. It feels good to be alive. zippity doo da. I blast the music. I roll down the windows and I drive, man. I enjoy everything I have. But it does not always occur to me to pause and to acknowledge the God who has given this good thing to me in that moment. What about for you? Is it as instinctive for you to turn to God in your happiness as it is to turn to him in your trouble. I think what James is really saying is, it's not a call to grow in the religious duty of talking to God. He's not saying, you know, remember when Paul said to the Thessalonians, pray at all times, and you're like, ugh, who's got the time to pray all the time? I remember I, I freaked my kids out when they were younger by saying, you know, the Bible says to pray at all times. So I was like closing my eyes, like faking it while I was driving. I should be praying right now. Dad, open your eyes. I'm thinking if we took that literally and we made it the religious activity of prayer, that's a pretty heavy command. But I think what Paul is saying, what James is saying, what they're both saying to us is it's not really a call to engage just in the religious conversation but to be mindful of, inclusive of God in our everyday life. It is to walk with Jesus, not as an in-case-of-emergency break-glass kind of thing, but to walk with Jesus as if he really is there. I think if God could speak to us from the heart, he would say to many of us, Hey, hey, yo, all I want is for you to look at me once in a while. I think it's what a lot of us might say to our spouses. All I ever really want is just a little attention. Look at me. Pause. Give me a quick hug, a peck on the cheek. Pretend I'm actually here. I know it comforts you when I'm in the building. But once someone just actually look at me, pretend I exist in your life, make space for me. Give me some idea that you think about me when you don't see me physically. Leave me a little post-it note that says, hey, <laughs> even that would be so. And I think that's God's heart. The same thing many people feel in marriage. That loneliness, that separation, that disconnection is exactly how God feels about us. I know you know I'm out there, but am I in, the, in here with you? See, I think the one thing those people on our short list have in common 
that we reach out to in our happiness is that they're the people we most cherish. They're the people who we feel truly closest to. And I think what God is saying to us is, I want to be in that place with you in your life. And that if I'm there with you, then constant prayer won't feel like a religious burden. It will feel like walking with someone in every moment of your life. When I was falling in love with Jeannie, I never said to myself, oh, i got to call her. I never put it on my to-do list, call Jeannie. We were long distance all the time. That was in the days before cell phones and email, so I would have to save up money for a long distance phone call. Do you remember those days? Anyone with gray hair will remember when you actually had to save up money to call someone who lived geographically far away. That idea is foreign to young people today, but I just remember thinking, I, would, I wish I could speak with her all the time. These young couples today in long-distance relationships, I'm like, That's not, you're not in a long-distance relationship. They have like their FaceTime video chat open on their computer all day long. They just walk, hey, what's up? Uh, how you doing? Oh, you got to change shirts, honey. That looks terrible with those pants. They're like connected all the time. But when I was falling in love, I didn't have to remind myself to connect with her. It was all I could think about. I think what God is saying is he doesn't want us to grow in the duty of prayer, but he wants us to grow more in relationship with him so that in the ups and downs of our life, he's one of the first people. In fact, he is the first one our hearts turn to. In the days before caller ID, there were phones that looked like this. There are videos on the Internet of little kids. They don't even know what to do with that thing. They go, uh, they keep pushing the numbers Nothing happens. And do you remember the days before caller ID? Every phone call was like, like a Christmas present. Ooh, I wonder who that could be. You had no idea who's calling you. And every day it's like, oh, the phone's ringing. I wonder who it's going to be for. Which one of us will win? And it's like, ah, oh, it's for you. It's not my phone call. Remember those days? But then caller ID happened. And now before we even answer the phone, we decide already how we feel about that phone call, don't we? Oh, my God. And we, we invented this thing called screening calls. Based on who is calling, we decide whether we even want to answer or not. How do we decide whether we feel positive or negative about the name on that caller ID? Mother-in-law. End or answer. Right? Which, which green or red button? Which one do you push? If you're a mother-in-law, everyone loves you. Doesn't apply to you. Doesn't apply to you. Only to those other mothers-in-law. How do you decide? Do any of you have kids who went to college, who went away, grew up and went away? When do they call you? (laughs) Do they ever call you because they're in a good mood and just wanted to say, hey, mom, dad, thanks for raising me. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know that they're only calling you because they need money. So how's everything? How's dad's health? How are you? They go through all the preamble, but you know why they're calling. Um, I sure am hungry lately. I'm losing a little weight, you know, don't have much money for food, but. And you know, the first half of that call is joyful, but the second half reminds you, man, I wish it were different. I wish I had a different kind of relationship with this person. 
See, there are some people who can ask us for something, and we feel a sense of honor and privilege. We're like, you know what? Thank you for asking me. I'd be glad to do that for you. And there are other people who ask you for something, and you're like, oh, I feel so put out, so offended. Because everything about that request rides on the pre-existing relationship, doesn't it? If there's a real relationship, you don't feel used by that person. You feel like you're actually doing life with that person. But if the only time they ever contact you is when they need you or when they want to spew and vent when you are their emotional air sickness bag, then you don't welcome that number on the readout of your caller ID, do you? Because you know they only reach into your life when there's something that they want to scoop out of you. There really is no other relationship. And so I think what James is saying to us is if you want the fullness of prayer life, the place to focus is whether you actually have a relationship with God or not, or you only turn to him when you're in trouble and need. Let me give you another observation from this text. And that is that prayer can be used by God for healing. Now, healing is something we all need. There isn't a person I've ever met who doesn't need healing of some kind from something. Some of that healing we need is physical, and some of it is emotional and spiritual. But I have not met any people in this life who are not broken by something. Maybe you've had a charmed life and you can't see that brokenness very readily, but it's there. Life breaks people. I had a conversation with my brother this past week. Normally, we talk about church and ministry, but we talked about our own faiths this past week. And on Thursday, we had this really intense, um, probably the most intense conversation we've had in a long time. And we talked about our faith and about the burden of spiritual doubt. As a pastor, when you have spiritual doubts, it's terrifying. And maybe it's terrifying for you to hear that pastors have spiritual doubts. Like, stop talking. I can't afford for you to have spiritual doubts. Well, sorry, tough luck. I do sometimes, and so does he. And we talked about it, and I realized he doubts a lot more than I do. <laughs> and not because his faith is weaker, but because, and here's what he said to me that haunted me. I got offended at first because, you know what? Most Christians doubt so little because they believe so little. They don't agonize over whether God's really out there because God's being out there isn't all that important to their everyday life. And I've been thinking about that. I've been haunted by that statement ever since. I wonder if the reason we're not more agitated by whether God is really out there or not is because it doesn't matter that much whether he is out there or not. Because most days we cope just fine with or without him. Most days we wake up and we handle our business. We put our heads down and get through life. We make our to-do lists. We pay our bills. We grit our teeth. And we say, well, this is hard, but so what? I can handle it. And I wonder if part of the reason we don't instinctively turn to God is because most days we don't desperately need him to be there. But once in a while, God will permit something to happen to us that will knock the wind right out of us. It is something so huge that our ability to cope 
won't matter anymore. And you realize, I can get through most stuff, but this, I can't. I finally hit my limit. You've done something to me. You've allowed something to happen to me that now I've hit the brick wall. I can't manage this. I don't know where to go from here. I don't know how to feel or what to do with this. I'm in a panic. And I think the reason God permits things like that in our lives is because he knows for most of us, that is the only way he is ever going to get our full attention. It is the only way we're ever going to come to him naked and honest in a place of true dependence. And one of the things he most commonly uses is sickness to bring us to that place. I have watched sickness take the edge and the pride and the self-reliance off of so many people's hearts. I'm not saying that in judgment, saying they needed some fixing. What I'm saying is sickness has a way of bringing us to our knees. James says, hey, anyone sick out there? What's your first impulse when you're sick? I grew up the son of a medical doctor. And I want to admit to you that I place an inordinate amount of faith in the power of modern medicine. I take pills for everything. The pharmacy is my best friend. I love the smell of hospitals. I trust medicine implicitly. And it's frankly very challenging for me to realize that God doesn't only handle the issues of my heart and my mind, but he could burst into the real world of flesh and bone and touch our physical bodies. I think we struggle a lot with faith regarding this because we say, you know, God, you're the God I come to for the emotional department, the spiritual department, but this is real sickness. And I think it pushes, it tests our faith. Do you really believe that prayer can result in healing? I think there are some in the Christian world, you know, God bless them, I say this with all the love in my heart, They believe that that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. That for like a short season, God said, I'm going to heal people supernaturally, and now I'm not going to do it anymore. I just totally disagree with people who believe that. I don't think it's found in Scripture anywhere. I truly believe with all my heart that God can and does heal. But in the moment when it's my sickness or my family's sickness, it really pushes the envelope of belief, doesn't it? And I realized, I don't think I've ever come to God for healing prayer for myself or for anyone else without at least some sliver, some edge of doubt that nags me in the back of my mind. And yet James says with such certainty and clarity, if you are sick, call the elders to pray. They will anoint you with oil and they will pray and you will be healed. Let me just pause and say I am so grateful to have walked for 20 years with elders in this church who take that call very seriously. We have stood by hospital beds with a vial of oil, dabbed it on people's foreheads, prayed over them. We have watched miracles happen. We have seen healings take place spiritually and physically. And these are elders who make time 
to respond to the calls for prayer on a regular basis. It's a reminder that the people we set in leadership over us should not just be the best leaders or the smartest guys. They're the kinds of people you would instinctively turn to and say, I need help from the Lord. Will you pray for me? That's, to me, the real qualification for a spiritual leader is do other people look at you and think that maybe God will use you as you pray to deliver them? We have such men. And he says, call them, and there will be healing. Now, we'll touch in a minute that level of certainty which, which James seems to speak about. But he also says later in verse 16 something surprising. He says, and it's not just the elders who have the privilege and authority to issue healing prayer. But he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. A lot of people in, in the commentaries who try to take the teeth out of this verse and make it about something mundane like, oh, just apologizing to people and praying for the relationship to be healed. But I don't believe that's the case. I think what James is saying is there is a power among the people of God to pray for healing for one another and see God grant that gift of healing. And that there seems to be this linkage between sin and sickness. I think we need to talk about that a little bit, don't you? if you misunderstand that, it's a big problem. We're not saying that every time someone is sick, there's sin behind it. That's not what we're saying at all. But I think scripture has places where it suggests to us, it, it indicates that sometimes sin is behind our sickness. Paul said very plainly to the Corinthian church, the reason some of you are sick and even dying is because you have made a mockery out of the Lord's Supper. He called you to love one another and you, you think that that's optional for you. And you live in hatred and bitterness and jealousy and competition. Everything about the culture of the family and community in the Corinthian church was sick. And he said that's the reason some of you are actually getting physically sick. I listened to something, a teaching by Tim Keller this week, and he made a very interesting point about psychosomatic illness here. Do you guys know what a psychosomatic illness is? Most people misunderstand it. They think, oh, psychosomatic illness is when you're not really sick, but it's all in your mind. You think you're sick. (coughs) I don't know what this is. You're You're just faking. That is not a psychosomatic illness. A psychosomatic illness is when you're actually sick physically and the doctors go, we don't get why you're sick. There's nothing physical that's causing this. It's coming from someplace else. So that the inner life that is messed up and bunched up is is basically exploding into the physical world and you're sick physically because of a sickness spiritually or emotionally. That it is entirely, and, and by the way, by most estimates, 5% of all medical diagnoses are psychosomatic and that the doctors go, we have no idea why you're sick. I think you're making yourself sick. And it's not fake sick, it's real sick, and it comes from the mind and the heart. And I think what James may be suggesting as well here, and what Paul is suggesting is, when you're sick, take that as an opportunity for reflection. Because what's going on inside does have an effect on the outside life. Is there unforgiveness, bitterness, envy, pride? 
that's creating a spiritual ulcer inside of you and it's bursting forth in physical unwellness. That's not going to mean that every time there's going to be something to confess. But when God lays you up with an illness, sometimes it's wise to ask the Lord, what are you doing here? Is there first something to confess? And then is there something to learn? Are you using this to shape me in some way? Another aspect of this is that often sickness brings out the worst in us. That veneer of civility and politeness and maturity that we wear most days, when we're sick, isn't it just kind of a free pass for five days to just be a grump? Right? To ring a bell and expect everyone to wait on us. Sickness brings out the worst in us. And sometimes what we'll discover in sickness is we'll see the real state of our hearts because the protection is gone. And I'm weak. I don't have enough energy to maintain my bodily functions and this air of civility I usually wear. And so now you see what I'm really like. And there's a lot of anger there. A lot of bitterness. A lot of pride. A lot of whatever. It comes out in sickness. And it's an opportunity to confess our sin. What do we then make of this certainty with which James says, you will be healed? Well, it seems to all hinge around this idea that the prayer that heals is a prayer of faith. A faith-filled prayer. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. There are numerous verses in the New Testament where the teaching suggests that if we pray as Christians for something, we will surely get what we're praying for. There are at least seven verses I can think of that seem to make that promise with such certainty. If you ask for it in my name, you will have it, I promise. And we've got to wrestle through that because it has not been my experience that everything I've prayed for, I've gotten. How about you? Is there anyone here who's gotten everything they've ever prayed for? I, I've experienced times when I have prayed desperately for someone, and weeks later, I'm at their funeral. And I scratch my head. I'm trying to figure out how all of this works. I am not God, so I can't give you a pat answer and tie it all up with a ribbon. I can't tell you, oh, it's all kind of resolves at the end, but here's my best understanding of this certainty in prayer. Wherever God tells us that we will have what we pray for, there seems to be two points of emphasis in all those passages. And the first is the most important challenge of faith in prayer is to believe that God is here and can do anything. That he is here and can do anything. Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty two to 24, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. The aim is not to, to teach a name-it-and-claim-it kind of prayer. I want this. I can picture it happening. It's mine. That is not what Jesus is teaching. But look at what he says right there in verse 22. Have faith in God. 
The first challenge of prayer is to believe that I'm praying to a God of infinite power and boundless love, that he is not against me, but that he is for me. And if he chooses to, there's nothing in this God that would prevent him from granting me what I ask. Do you really see God that way? In our desperation, we so easily say, yeah, of course, of course, God could do anything. But do you believe him? Do you relate to him as a God who is infinite in power and boundless in love for you? Because I think the first challenge of prayer is to wrestle through what I really think of God, not what I hope for in the outcome, but what I truly believe is, is true about God that I pray to. And a second point of emphasis in these prayers of certainty is that it is prayer that acknowledges the will of God. The promises aren't just given blanketly to everybody saying, hey, if you're a Christian, you get everything you ask for. Let me ask you, if every Christian got everything they prayed for, would you want to live in that world? You would not want to live in a world where I get everything I pray for. I would want to live in a world where you get everything you pray for. What he's saying is, you must believe that there are no limits to what God can do, but there are limits to the wisdom of what I see and know and what I dare to ask for, so that I will ultimately in prayer wrestle, not just to whether God is able and willing, but whether I can ultimately align myself with what is best for him and for me whether I can submit to the final decree of God after I've said my prayer. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have what we asked of him. I want to call us into a life of deeper prayer. But now with a focus on getting the outcomes we so much want in our lives, but realizing it is through the wrestling match of prayer as we come to God with our doubts, with some measure of unbelief, with that fear, that tension that I might not get what I asked for, that somehow in that struggle, we will come to a deeper relationship with this God. And that as we arrive at that deeper place with God, he will work in our hearts so that he will become greater still and that he will give us the ability to accept the things he gives us in our life. We don't put God on trial based on what happens to us, but we understand what's happening to us as we get to know God more deeply. And so much of that happens as we wrestle with him in prayer. I want to invite you to bow your heads. Now, I think part of the reason that we sometimes don't appreciate the gift of what prayer is is because we don't allow ourselves to be truly honest in prayer, wrestling baldly, nakedly with God, saying, I'm really struggling here with whether or not you're going to work in my life. I don't know if I'm ever going to be happy in my situation. 
I don't know if this person's going to crush my heart. I don't know if they're going to make it out of the hospital. I don't know if I'm going to find work. I don't know if anyone will ever marry me. I don't know if we're ever going to have children. There are so many things that weigh on our hearts. And I think the gift of prayer is not that we come to God with this total confidence, doubtless faith. Oh, I know for sure God will do it. I have no doubts. But to say, God, I am really struggling. But even in my unbelief and my doubting, I am bringing that to you. I want to wrestle with you through the heartaches of life, the uncertainties of life. I want to somehow know you better as I wrestle with you in this quiet place of prayer. Use that wrestling, God, to shape my heart and help me to know my God more deeply. So I'm going to give you some time of quiet. I'm going to invite you to just sit before your God and wrestle a little bit this morning. And then a few minutes, we'll invite the team to lead us in a closing song. God, as we go into this time of wrestling, Holy Spirit, be here presently in this place. Carry us over the threshold into things we're afraid to think about or say, knowing that in your presence we're safe to be ourselves, to put up no pretense, to tell you we are struggling with belief, and to believe that in that doubt you will still meet us and introduce yourself to us and shape us. Teach us to pray, God. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.